I am not Dr. Weaver. You say you are not. That's right. Uh, but he has asked me to read Psalm 22 uh, before he comes to preach. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our ancestors trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, and not human, scorned by others and despised by the people. All who see me mock at me. They make mouths at me. They shake their heads. They say, commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver. Let him rescue the one in whom he delights. Yet, it was you who took me from the womb. You kept me safe on my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Do not be far from me. The trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls encircle me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs are all around me. A company of evildoers encircles me. My hands and feet have shriveled. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far away. O my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion." From the horns of the wild oxen you have rescued me. I will tell of your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. To him indeed shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow down all those uh, before him shall bow all those who go down to the dust, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, unborn, saying, He has done it. This is the word of the Lord. This morning I would like to talk a little bit about intertextuality. First of all, let me make it clear that intertextuality has nothing whatsoever to do 
with students making comments to one another via mobile device during one of Dr. Brewer's lengthy lectures on Engelbert Humperdinck. <laughs> or perhaps I could be thinking of Balthazar Hubmeier. I'm not really sure. After a while, all of those reformers do sort of run together, don't they? <sighs> now, there's no need to look so offended, Brian. I'm certainly not suggesting that any such text would be anything other than positive. I'm sure they're saying things to one another like, this is pure gold. How can our pastors have kept this from us? That is not what I mean by intertextuality. Intertextuality refers to the interdependent relationship between texts. It is concerned with how one text shapes another text or perhaps derives meaning from it. On the one hand, these connections can be broad and structural. For example, James Joyce's novel Ulysses is essentially a retelling of Homer's Odyssey set in Dublin, Ireland. On the other hand, these links can be established by a word or phrase that joins one narrative not just to another text, but to a far larger world of interpretive history and communal tradition. In this type, it is this type of connection that we are going to explore this morning. Now, while we encounter intertextuality in our own lives on a daily basis, let's be frank, in our age, our texts tend to be TV shows, movies, and music. Incidents also communicated through social media. We are not immune to this, even in the hallowed halls of this academic institution. One of our own sacred communal narratives illustrates this well. No, I'm not talking about the founding of the seminary, nor am I even talking about Professor Fight Club. I am speaking of the one story that unites us all, regardless of our ethnic, social, or theological diversity. Of course, I can only be referring to what happened in the early hours of last Tuesday morning. <laughs> if you have not heard of Dr. Still's Jedi-like fo uh, foiling of a carjacking attempt, <laughs> then perhaps, where have you been? <laughs> if you have not heard that story, then perhaps I should also inform you that the Allies have defeated the Axis powers, bringing an end to the Second World War. NASA has successfully landed men on the moon. The Berlin Wall has come down. And modern technology has given us personal computers that we can each have at home, work, and school. Now that you've been brought up to speed, we can turn our attention to our own esteemed and beloved professor, Dr. Todd Still, for he has this week joined the ranks of Epaphroditus, <laughs> Timothy, Paul, and even Jesus himself as a model to be imitated. In the words of Israel's wisdom tradition, he did not repay evil, but waited for the Lord, not to mention the Waco police. Like Peter and John in Acts of old, he spoke with parousia, with boldness. And so, speaking the truth in love, 
He has shown us, if I may quote 1 Corinthians 12, 31, a still more excellent way. (laughs) The author of 1 Peter tells us that like a roaring lion, our adversary the devil prowls around looking, metaphorically speaking, to jump into the back seat of our truck. And as we watch that video again and again and again, Dr. Still has shown us the efficacy of heeding the exhortations of his own beloved Apostle Paul. Hear now these words. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist on the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the gym shorts of truth, (laughs) and having neatly tucked in the Baylor t-shirt of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the tube socks of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of Emily Post's book of etiquette, And finally, take up the sword of lexical loquaciousness. Thus arrayed in such a potent panoply, not even the gates of hell can stand against us. Can I get an amen, Curtis? (laughs) Dr. Steele, how about a hearty huzzah? (laughs) When a story such as this, a story so well-known and well-used, When you have a story like that, it can be referenced by a mere phrase from the text, such as, excuse me, ma'am, whatever do you think you are doing? Or even perhaps by a derivative slogan, such as the new bumper sticker on my Ford Expedition, which reads, fear the tuck, hands off my truck. (laughs) Should you need any more examples of intertextuality, intertextuality, I need but send you to any office door on the second floor, although one of them has been recently cleaned, but fear not, like kudzu, some things come back with a vengeance. (laughs) Now, in today's passage from Mark 15, we encounter this type of intertextual connection. Jesus cries out, uttering the first line of the 22nd Psalm, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' cry of dereliction, as this phrase has come to be known, has been the object of a great deal of interpretive speculation. The options are much too numerous to be recounted here. Furthermore, as is often the case case with scholars, varied readings are debated in either-or terms, as if the use of a text such as Psalm 22, which is at once... Scripture, poetry, prayer, liturgy, and communal tradition, as if its use could be sorted into neat piles like laundry. Some interpreters would like to focus solely on the actual words used by Jesus, but that is problematic given the nature of the text cited. First century Jews were conversant with Scripture in the same way that we are conversant with television, movies, and music. In addition, this particular text is a psalm, the singing of which both connects it to worship 
and roots it in memory. Furthermore, Psalm 22 is an individual lament. And as such, it had for centuries been appealing and meaningful to Jews with the blues. In an age of scrolls with no pagination or numbers, texts were identified by the first line or a prominent phrase. Thus, by citing the opening of this psalm, Jesus provides in our parlance a hyperlink to the whole psalm as well as to its attendant traditions. As we have heard it read this morning, this well-known psalm has its own narrative arc. In verse 24, it is evident that the pendulum has swung. As the psalmist exclaims, he did not despise nor abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. God was there. Moving from lament to praise, the psalm ends with an upward trajectory. The final two verses read again, Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. In our Protestant tradition, we have our own songs of sadness and suffering. For even good Baptists get the blues. Horatio Spofford lost his only son to scarlet fever at the age of four. In 1871, he lost all of his real estate investments when the great Chicago fire destroyed the entire city. And then in 1873, all four of his young daughters were killed when their ship collided with another vessel uh, and sank on a transatlantic crossing. On the way to England to meet his wife, who survived the tragedy, he wrote the words of the hymn, It is well with my soul. Those now old and familiar words have given comfort and hope to generations of believers. For there are times when we can sing what we cannot bring ourselves to say. The words of this hymn resonated with me as I faced the possible loss of my own daughter. My youngest daughter, Becca, who is doing well now, had a tumor with a high mortality rate that was located in a precarious position on her neck and upper spine, enmeshed with many key nerves and organs. As she faced a particularly delicate surgery about which we were not optimistic, I remember singing to myself, these words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. As they gave us an opportunity to spend some time with her before surgery and say our goodbyes, it was not well with my soul. Physically, I felt nauseated. My heart was pounding. It was hard to breathe as waves of fear and stress rolled over me. And so, in our tradition, 
The lines of this hymn are words that you say when you are suffering, when you don't know what else to say. They allow you to identify with a great cloud of witnesses, fellow sufferers who have gone before. Likewise, these words serve as a prayer of hope. And while this hymn, like Psalm 22, concludes with a triumphal note, the pain and the suffering that preceded are no less real. And so this proleptic praise, this rejoicing over a deliverance that has yet to be received, serves to remind us that what we see and experience is not all that there is. And while you are in the midst of suffering, that can be hard to believe. The late 60s was a particularly turbulent and disturbing time. Now, I'm talking about the actual 60s, not the 1960s. Although I have seen some photos of Dr. Garland from the 1960s with fashion choices that could certainly be labeled as disturbing, but we will save those for another day. Let Dr. Still have his moment in the sun. <laughs> Nevertheless, look for those pictures of Dr. Garland coming to an office door near you in fall of 2012. Now, to be a Christian in Rome, which is traditionally regarded as the site of Mark's audience, to be a Christian in Rome in the 60s of the first century was fraught with difficulties. Nero burned much of the city to make way for urban renewal, including his own personal palace complex. When grants of tax relief and public benefaction failed to squelch the rumors of his involvement, he conveniently placed blame upon Christians, a group known for their lack of conformity to traditional Roman practices and values. Mass arrests and heinous executions followed. The decade ended with civil war over dynastic succession, not to mention the failed Jewish revolt in Judea that culminated with the destruction of the temple in the year 70. The choice to follow Jesus in such a setting could indeed have dire consequences. Loss of status, loss of property, loss of livelihood, loss of family, loss of connections, even loss of life. I imagine that more than a few Christians in Rome wondered, where is the resurrection power? Where is the deliverance from the one who sits at the right hand of the Father? At the halfway point of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus turns his face toward Jerusalem. And on the way to Jerusalem, he teaches his disciples to be first in service and last in power. He teaches them that those who seek to save their lives will lose it. He teaches them to take up their cross daily and follow him. Yet every time on that journey that he predicts his passion, he encounters opposition and a lack of understanding from those who follow. Peter rebukes him. James and John request positions of honor and power. The whole group debates 
who is the greatest. In the end, he is betrayed and denied. One follower in Mark's gospel flees naked, leaving behind his very clothes. And thus, the ones who, in the beginning of the gospel, left everything to follow Jesus have now literally left everything to get away from him. Their desires and ambitions have been nakedly exposed. And so, as Jesus is crucified in Mark, only the women are present and they are far off. In Mark's narrative, Jesus hangs there on the cross, abandoned and alone. In circumstances like that, what is there to say? What else can you do but sing the blues? And so Jesus turns to the scriptures, to the sacred traditions of his people. He turns to the well-known song of the righteous sufferer. The very psalm that laments God's absence also testifies to his presence. However, here in Mark's crucifixion scene, the pendulum has yet to swing. And so, just as when listening to the blues, we await the resolution of the final chord. The cross in Mark testifies that our God identifies with human suffering. The intertextual testimony of the 22nd Psalm asserts, furthermore, that God is present and hears our cries. Finally, to a modern Christianity marked by prosperity and triumphalism, the place of the cross in Mark's larger narrative testifies that the path to glory is through the cross. The path of discipleship leads to suffering. Deliverance will come, but only through Calvary. If you listen carefully, you can hear the intertextual echo of the last words of the 22nd Psalm reverberating through time. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. He has done it indeed. Let us pray. For those of us who suffer, hear our cries, O Lord. For those of us who do not suffer enough, give us the courage to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you wherever that may lead. In the name of Jesus Christ, who has gone before us and now goes with us, we pray. Amen.